0: 2015 was a watershed year for many reasons, but one that might have been overlooked was the leak of the Panama Papers. The leak exposed the secret business dealings of a number of governments, political figures, and global corporations. It was also the biggest data leak in history. And it took more than 100 news outlets and the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists months to find the stories and the data. Things like the Panama Papers, the Edward Snowden NSA leaks, and WikiLeaks have helped bring attention to the work being produced by data journalists, both in the United States and abroad. Data journalism is the focus of this episode of Stats and Stories, where we look at the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film, as well as the American Statistical Association. Our regular panelists are Department of Statistics Chair John Baylor and Department of Media, Journalism, and Film Chair Richard Campbell. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Our guest today is freelance journalist Andrew Flowers. Flowers served as an economic research analyst at the Federal Reserve Bank in Atlanta before spending almost three years as a quantitative editor for 538. So thanks for being here, Andrew.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So how does someone go from being an analyst at the Fed to working in journalism?
1: Well, it's a, it's a rather strange, circuitous path. Uh, but essentially, during the um, financial crisis, I was working at the Federal Reserve uh, Bank of Atlanta. And in addition to doing uh, policy work and uh, kind of capital-e economics, so to speak, I, I really got the news bug and wanted to write for a popular audience. And I was lucky enough to have uh, colleagues at the Atlanta Fed who uh, were open-minded enough uh, relative to other Fed banks to have a blog and a magazine. And so when I started to write for those outlets within the Fed, that led me to conclude I should really get into uh, news and journalism, and so that kind of was my bridge to eventually moving towards Five Thirty Eight.
2: So, how, how difficult was that transition to go from from writing very technically to to writing towards a more popular audience?
1: It was very challenging, honestly. It was it was very challenging. I, I never did classic journalism, whether it was through kind of a university newspaper, college newspaper, or or obviously worked as a journalist after school. Uh, so learning how to craft uh, news stories, how to report, how to do fact checking, how to write a lead, how to you know interview characters and kind of get those insights uh, that are both accurate but also engaging and to engage your readers, which is something, frankly, as an someone from an academic background at the Fed, you don't really think much about. Your readers are assumed to be engaged because they're your colleagues, they're other academics. So to kind of write for a popular audience through a news website or a newspaper requires thinking about hooks uh, that are both accurate and fair but, but are tying the reader to something that's relevant to uh, their life or, or, or their interest. And That transition of learning the kind of classical journalism writing principles is something that took years and and i'm still learning it
3: so did you do anything specific or can you point to anything that really helped you in that transition to to think more in terms of story
1: honestly it just a combination of uh one reading a lot of news but two more important than anything just the editors and colleagues i had uh, in that newsroom, being edited repeatedly by, by an experienced journalist and having them kind of tear apart my copy in a good way to say, hey, this part is boring. We're all this meat of you know methodological explanation. You can kind of condense it. We still want the story to be accurate, so we want to keep it in there, but you can move it further down in the story and kind of lead with um, something that illustrates your broader point and, and kind of teasing your conclusions earlier in the story. Uh, and I can go on. These are just many different types of um, uh, advice that I, I kind of absorbed through uh, dozens and dozens, hundreds really of experiences of writing copy and getting it edited. Those colleagues at Five Thirty Eight who were experienced journalists, those editors, I think that that was the one great ex- um, hands-on work experience that really helped me make that transition as best I could.
2: So, what was your the, your favorite story that you've that you've worked on, or that that had the most interesting, the the interesting outcome when you've done this dig deep dive into a set of data? to address a certain question of interest to you?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, it's a really it's a really hard question. I mean, I guess my first instinct is to respond with the longest story I wrote, which, you know, is not always a good gauge. Length and time invested in a project doesn't always correlate well with uh, what you think is as perceived quality. But in this case, yeah, I, I wrote a story uh, in April of 2016, April of last year, about it, it was originally going to be tied to the uh, referendum in Switzerland over a universal basic income, this kind of economic idea of giving every person, every citizen uh, a set amount of money, whether they're rich or poor, whether they're employed or not. And then uh, what the story evolved into was beyond Switzerland and it was kind of a, a longer piece about the different uh, activists and economists and researchers and, and, and really historians who kind of trace this idea of basic income and, and the pros and cons of, of the story. And to me, the thing that was so interesting was it was a very character-driven kind of classical journalism story on the one hand, but also very data-driven, very economics-y on the other. And you had, uh, from the character side, a, a really strange Motley crew group of people interested in this in this policy. Uh, you had kind of your classical socialist uh, and progressives, but then you had like strangely libertarians and conservatives too, and 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 thrown in the mix, there were these Silicon Valley techies who kind of thought the idea was revolutionary in a compatible way with with future advances in automation. So that to me was the kind of table setting that really piqued my interest. Was wow, look at all these different interest groups that are are. are varied but all in this together and then on the technical side the data side just trying to look at the math to make it work because I mean it, it's a uh, it's an appealing idea in, in some ways on the pro side in terms of how it would have uh, you know maybe uh, be a better replacement for uh, welfare programs but on the con side in terms of actually uh, affording it kind of looking hard at the numbers across countries in terms of what governments spend their their social safety net money on that was really interesting so as a whole I would say my universal basic income piece was the most interesting story to kind of report and report I, I probably spoke to twenty-five people but and then at the same time uh, parallel with that the uh, looking into the data and to try to weave it all together that was probably the the single most um, interesting experience but there were others too
3: Andrew, you just, you just talked about characters. So that was the first thing you talked about. So in this, in this, in your role, how do you think about sort of balancing the idea that you have to tell a story that has characters? So you're, you're, con, you're, you're thinking about that, but you also don't wanna sort of misrepresent, misrepresent the complexity of the numbers and the data. So how, how do you get that balance?
1: That, that is, I think, the question for data journalists, uh, so you're cutting right to it, because characters are crucial in any type of storytelling, and, and, and particularly in journalism, um, and really, they're important in data journalism, um, but you also want to be accurate and um, rigorous, so there's a tension between, saying, pointing to a character who may be an outlier, it could be a sports athlete, um, if you're writing a sports story, it could be, um, if, if you connote character to mean kind of a town or a political party or whatever that you think is kind of above and beyond the best, the worst, uh, uh, whatever. It's an outlier. And you want to kind of prove it, pigeonhole it with your prior thinking that this, this is exceptional. This character is exceptional. And you, you may be tempted to force the data. To prove that, hey, this – oh, no, this really is an outlier or this time is different. Um, and so there's that that temptation to see a character as exceptional and then find the data to back it up, which can lead you astray. Um, of course, sometimes there really are outliers. And, and, and for, mm-hmm. for data journalists, that's the kind of bread and butter story to write. That is um, – it's, 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 it's the easiest, the most engaging story to, to say, hey, who is this person that is uh, – or, or this character of this group that is the most unusual? So uh, it's important as a data journalist to use characters and I think your, your work is going to be too dry and unrelatable. It won't, it won't be engaging if you totally eschew characters and as an academic might uh, just focus on the uh, methodology and the data and the results. Uh, so you can't. You have to have both, and that's what makes this task of not just storytelling but data storytelling so challenging. And uh, there's specific techniques and 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 ways we can get into how to weaving characters in a data story to make it effective. But as a whole, that is the tension and and the greatest challenge. Thank you.
0: You're listening to Stats and Stories, where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics. Today, our focus is data journalism. I'm Rosemary Pennington. Joining me are panelist, Miami University Statistics Department Chair John Baylor and Media Journalism and Film Department Chair Richard Campbell. Our special guest is freelance data journalist Andrew Flowers, who served as a quantitative editor at 538. So, Andrew, what exactly does a quantitative editor do?
1: So, my experience in two and a half years as the quantitative editor... At 538, it was really incredible. It's kind of a weird title, I know, right? Quantitative editor, it's, it's, it's not a, a common job description. But when I was hired and um, as we began to uh, prepare for the relaunch of 538 under ESPN and ABC News, this was uh, exactly three years ago actually, in, in March of, of 2014. Uh, the role that was kind of outlined for me was twofold. On the one hand, I would be a, a kind of writer of sorts, uh, and I wrote about economics topics primarily, but also sports and politics occasionally. But the, but the the main thrust of my role, kind of two-thirds of my work, was this quant editor role. And, and so uh, essentially what it means is I edited copy, but not for prose, for methodology, to make sure that the, um, the statistics being used, the data analysis presented in the story w- were accurate and fair. And uh, they use the kind of modern technical tools uh, in their presentation. And we're just – the data was rigorous in all 538 stories. That was my mandate. But what, what that involved is really – is two things. One, working with writers on the back end and then on the front end. And so on the back end, when they've submitted a copy, they have data in their stories. It's me reading their stories as a quantum editor with a critical eye, asking kind of tuss, tough questions, stress testing their assumptions, um, and really – fact-checking their work in many cases, I would kind of review their code if they had any, or, or, or their data uh, calculations to make sure it was correct. But the but the 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 front end quant editor uh, role was almost more interesting in many cases. It was working with writers uh, either before their story really took shape or in the midst of it, and they would come to me with either technical requests of Hey, I am struggling to." scrape this data from a web page or how do I kind of munch together and join together all these messy uh, uh, data formats that I'm unfamiliar with? Or how can I better visualize and better um, model uh, what's, the, what's the best statistical analysis approach to take with this with this story? And so helping writers almost as a staff data scientist uh, from the start of their stories was a, a, a great experience because I got a lot of reps, both through my own work but through uh, kind of almost as a assistant to, uh, or a, a coworker uh, uh, with other writers to see how their storytelling abilities took shape. They had a question in mind. They looked for characters. They did reporting in many cases, but then when it came to the data, they brought me in to help them, and that, that was the role as a quantitative editor, and it's kind of a, a, a role that I don't know if other journalism outlets have. I, I hear the, the title data editor at uh, other news outlets, but it was a role I really relished and I think is increasingly important in many newsrooms as they move towards uh, more data-driven storytelling.
2: That ties nicely to a point that you had made a, in earlier comments, the idea of avoiding forcing data. You know, And I, I, I worry when I think about someone having questions in mind that, that you just don't, don't go out and search and cherry pick for data that's going to be consistent with, with the beliefs. So what are some of the ways that, that you would help, help advise people when they were working on their stories to, to avoid that temptation? Um.
1: So, actually, I think one suggestion that many editors, and wasn't just me as the quant editor, would give to give to writers, is is to say, even if you are consider yourself a data journalist and you just want to dive into the weeds, take some time to actually report this like a, a traditional journalist would, because it's those experts, whether they're policymakers, activists, or academics, who are going to kind of have a broader or deeper understanding of the subject matter, of course, but also have a kind of broader purview of what are the weaknesses in the data if there are if, if there are weaknesses? That said, after they did some reporting and, and when they had the uh, data in their hands and I would ask them uh, you know critical questions, and I would kind of advise them with kind of principles as to how to approach it without kind of forcing the so, so that they wouldn't force the data into a narrative, what I would often recommend is, Lots of iterative data exploration in the early stages because so often, um, if you have a kind of preconceived notion of what you want to write, you can find it in the data. But if you take some time out at the beginning to say, let's just graph, because I think we're all visual learners, um, let's just graph the data set in different ways um, to kind of just learn uh, the contours of, say, the distribution of the different say basketball players, if it's a sports data set, or if it's a political donations, look at how they're clustered within different interest groups, just kind of visualize the data to get a a kind of 30,000 foot understanding of it at the beginning, number one. And then number two, once you do have your thesis, and again, any good data storytelling uh, endeavor, any good journalism story, really, data or not, has a kind of point, right? You have a, uh, a thesis and once you have that data thesis in mind, to stress test it in very rigorous ways to ensure that, say, for example, you're not p-hacking or you're kind of uh, doing multiple, in the statistical jargon, you would be doing multiple hypothesis testing, running many regressions to kind of find something that's significant and say, oh, I found something, when really you were just kind of data mining in in the bad sense of the term. Um, So to advise them against that, would be, you know, me coming in uh, as they did their analysis and and asked them, well, how many different variables did you look at? And uh, did you run the appropriate statistical uh, checks to make sure that uh, your work is not just um, spurious? It's not just a random result that you're going to then run off and write a story with. Um, So iterative data exploration, kind of rigorous statistical checks, reporting. And then finally, I would say um, just... uh, collaborating uh, with other writers and other editors like myself and others to say check that my work is even correct because you would you would be shocked how often and this happens with uh, traditional news outlets all the time but but also with data journalists how you just get the numbers wrong i mean i mean people make mistakes the error rates when dealing with kind of messy files or you know government issued data and uh in and, and when you're rushed you're working on a deadline the error rates can be high we worked very hard over my essentially three years at 530 to get those error rates, those corrections down. And to do that, I think we best did it by having kind of a, a collaboration mentality within the newsroom that you would kind of share your your work. In a, in, and then secondly, to hopefully document it in a through code or through other documentation that so that a second person could take it and fully fact check it. So those are all the kind of checks and advice I would I would tend to give to any story to make sure that it wasn't, you know, pigeonholing a narrative the writer had in their mind and then and, and then using the data to, to kind of force uh, quote unquote evidence for it.
3: So to, fi- to follow up on that and all of the hard work that goes into getting this right, we seem to be living in a world of fake news and alternative facts where neither news or numbers is fully trusted. And uh, the question is, I guess, more a political one. What what can statisticians and journalists do about that?
1: That, that is, that is the question, um, this issue of fake news and and how to address it. That is the question I most struggle with because I I frankly don't really have a a good answer. I I feel like over the last few years, 538 has modeled a level of transparency Mm -hmm. in, uh, national journalism at least with, on the data side, that is, uh, frankly, unprecedented. And it's not that other news organizations weren't striving to be transparent. It's just that because 538 had a niche niche to, to be data-driven, uh, we took it a step further in our transparency by, in many cases, posting the data and the code behind our stories online so that it could be reproduced and checked by others. And, and of course, sometimes... Um, uh, corrected by others. Um, and so I managed, uh, along with others on our, our data visualization team, a GitHub repository, a way to kind of uh, post data and code and share it with others. And so if a story merited, if it, if it had significance in the data usage and the code, we would put it out there in uh, in a public way to say, here's our work, we're going to be transparent about it. Now, what does that do? Um, and, and, and by the way, I don't think that was... Uh, often done before by other news outlets. But what does that do? As a data journalist, it it tells your reader and your wider audience and really your potential readers who are maybe skeptical of your approach, it tells them, we're not just going to say we're credible. We're not just going to try to report and get a balanced view of things. We're actually going to show our work. And if you don't believe us, you can go and check it out yourself. Now – Many readers aren't going to do that. I mean, that's a small sliver of readers. So is that a you know the silver bullet to the fake news problem? Well, of course not. But taking kind of very concrete, digital-oriented steps towards being more transparent in your in your reporting, I'd love to see news organizations, for example, post. Okay, here are the calls I had. I talked to these groups. Here's who made the cut. Who's who didn't? And. Uh, and it doesn't have to go with the story. It doesn't have to clutter the news the uh, the reader automatically is, uh, is, is looking for, assumed to look for. But if the reader wants to look for it to see, okay, who did you talk to? Or, or in, in, the, in in the 538 case, what's the data? What's the code? How, how did you make that chart? Um, they can go and find it. And these small steps, digital-oriented steps towards transparency, towards a really new level of robust transparency, I think can make a small dent in this bigger – I mean, gorilla of a problem that is fake news. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's gonna stop. Like, I don't think posting your work on online in a transparent way is gonna stop from you know viral memes coming out of a kind of uh, a, a Facebook uh, uh, quote-unquote news site that is really just you know one or two you know yellow journalists trying to uh, uh, make a take a erroneous point and kind of just get some clicks out of it. That is a. a a much bigger problem with the internet and how uh, we consume news in echo chambers that I just don't frankly have an answer to, but news organizations I do believe can take some small concrete steps towards being even more transparent and hopefully that will uh, increase the public's faith.
0: Listening to stats and stories, and today we're exploring data journalism with our guest, freelance data journalist Andrew Flowers. Uh, so, from the reader's perspective, we live in this world where things aren't quite as transparent as we'd like them to be. How would you suggest readers navigate uh, stories that are based on data? How can they figure out what's worth trusting and and what maybe they can sort of avoid or, or just you know close out altogether?
1: Yeah, that's 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 really hard. I, I think. Um... And to be clear, I think there's a lot of great data journalism being done, not just at 538. I think uh, uh, the Upshot of the New York Times does great work. Um, uh, smaller sites or international news sites like The Guardian or smaller websites, I think Priceonomics is a good example, who often work with data and, and I think do a good job with it. Uh, that said, though, in terms of as a news consumer, how to uh, adjudicate between, OK, this is a bad use of data journalism or a good use. Um, it's difficult, but but the kind of baseline assumption, I think, is what's the writer's attitude or the news outlet's attitude towards me, the reader, and what I need to know? Mm-hmm. And you can often pick up on that through the tone of the piece and how much information is conveyed in the piece through subtle things like footlo- footnotes, links, and charts, for example. Source lines and charts is a great – like these little details that tell you, the reader, oh, the, the writer and the designer who made this story – cared enough to include hyperlinks, include footnotes, include uh, source lines to the charts to to kind of quote-unquote, you know, um, cite cite their entire story as an academic would. And that tells you, okay, this news organization treats me with a level of respect that says, I'm not going to tell you, the reader, uh, from me, the writer, who is all-knowing what to believe. I'm going to kind of lay out my work for you cite my sources, here are the links so that you can follow and pull the data yourself or read the stories yourself or here's the organization, here's a link to it. You can go and check out their credibility, uh, make your um, conclusions, draw your conclusions from their website if you want. Just providing the reader with a rich level of information so that they themselves uh, can go and find and make up their – find more information and make up their mind. That, that tells the reader, I have respect for your intelligence, and I'm not here to kind of uh, lord over you with the kind of narrative that, hey, this is how it is, but to show my work and, ma- and make a case for it. That tone and that level of respect you can pick up on, I think, through just a repeated intelligent reading of news sources. And again, again a lot of news sources do this. Um, but if a news source doesn't, if they're not really citing their numbers, if they're just kind of throwing information out with no links or cita- or even just verbal uh, uh, text citations as to where it comes from, and they just assume you'll run with it, that's, I think, a red flag and tells you this is uh, sloppy data journalism.
2: You know, one, one challenge with this and is the, uh, the implicit long form that's associated with, with really good good reporting and good stories. And I, I wonder how that plays out in a, in a world where 140 characters is a is the bite-sized chunk that many want to consume.
1: It's a challenge. And it, again, it, it, it's a challenge because on, on multiple fronts, to make a story engaging when you're using numbers is a challenge, to uh, make a story engaging when it's complex, when the answer, if there is an answer, is nuanced, and therefore it takes more time to kind of digest and present. That's a challenge. Um, to, so you are swimming upstream, Um. But to kind of rise to the occasion and to take these cues that frankly come not from statisticians but come from the classic principles of storytelling, principles like um, using characters, using visuals, um, kind of crafting scenes and backdrops to uh, the the conversations that take place, uh, to connecting the data to real people, to actually finding who the outliers are and telling their stories. What's that town that's the most unequal in America? Who's that – politician who uh, won with the least amount of, uh, you know, external fundraising. Whatever it is, to kind of uh, contextualize the data through storytelling, I think is, is really powerful. So I'll give you one example. I think I think this is just a fabulous story that my colleague Anna Marie Berrychester wrote last summer for 538. Um, yeah, this is part of a guns project that 538 did where they kind of presented a data visualization on gun deaths in America and it kind of showed you with the best available data uh that we can get here's the composition of gun deaths in America uh how many are attributable to suicides which i think would surprise a lot of people that it's um, it's a lot more than you would expect. How many are homicides, uh, accidents, and so on? And so this is a part of an interactive that was very data heavy, but the story that accompanied it along with other stories, the one that Anna wrote that s- still sticks with me as a great template for story, uh, data storytelling is a story uh, about uh, a man in Wyoming who had, committed, who had attempted to commit suicide with a gun. And uh, she told his story about kind of getting help and through his family, through counselors. But the the broader context of the story was, hey, uh, gun ownership rates are extremely high in the Mountain West. Suicide rates, particularly by using firearms, are extremely high in this area too. Uh, who, who tends to commit suicide with a firearm? Well, it, it's overwhelmingly men. It's overwhelmingly white men compared to other races. And it's overwhelmingly middle-aged men. Uh, compared to other age distru- age groups, so it, it was a story about a person and a very emotional and kind of tragic uh, experience. And they their kind of the arc, the narrative arc was how they kind of got help and was able to move beyond that. But it was all rooted in data. It all used charts and maps to kind of show you, okay, all the CDC data we just threw at you. If your eyes glazed over, that's okay. Here's one way to interpret it. And so. That's just one case, and there are many other examples I can give of my, of my colleagues and my, my work where you have to rise to the occasion, whether it's fake news, whether it's the kind of 140-character Twitter social media landscape that the news world lives in and, and operates in. All these challenges can be met, I believe, with a combination of two things. One, good storytelling that's never going to go away, finding the right characters, showing the narrative arc, where's the tension that is never going to go away. And then the second thing, to be met with data, it, it, you can meet these challenges with data and accuracy in your work, the transparency that we provide, and to not let these uh, potential readers have their eyes glaze over and lose interest to present that data in a very aesthetically pleasing way through visuals, visuals, through uh, video uh, and podcasts when necessary. That I think is, uh, these are the tactics I would, we, we we have used and I would recommend anyone to use to combat those big challenges.
0: Well, Andrew, that's all the time we have for our conversation today. Thank you so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me, it was a real pleasure.
0: Stats and Stories is a partnership between Miami University's Departments of Statistics and Media, Journalism, and Film and the American Statistical Association. Stay tuned and keep following us on Twitter or iTunes. If you'd like to share your thoughts on our program, send your email to statsandstories at miamioh.edu and be sure to listen for future editions of Stats and Stories where we discuss the statistics behind the stories and the stories behind the statistics.